When Christians in the early church say hello, one of the words they use to describe one another is the word beloved. It's to remind one another that you and I are dearly loved by God. And I think it's a good practice for us to continue even today. So good morning, my beloved family and friends in Christ. Good morning. Okay, to our friends visiting with us with us today, we welcome you to be with us this morning as we gather as a church to worship God. And today, we shall continue looking at the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, found in the Old Testament. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 to 36. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 to 36. But before we get into today's message, and because we are going to be listening to God's Word, let us pray for the Holy Spirit to work in us. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your Word. Show me myself and show me my Saviour. And make the book live to me. For Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, some years back, I travelled with a youth and young adult team to a particular Southeast Asian country on a mission trip. We were in the capital city and travelling by car to the various ministry locations when we noticed something unusual. We noticed that there were many incomplete road flyovers. Okay? So in order to bypass a busy junction, you have a road going up onto a ramp, onto a bridge, and suddenly it stops abruptly as the rest of the bridge remains unbuilt. And when you, like me, remember we are stuck in a massive traffic jam, wishing for the car to move a wee bit faster. You know, you tend to notice things like this. And I remember asking Desmond, our missionary partner then, and he replied this, that the road flyover projects were originally supposed to ease traffic jams. But they were left unfinished, mainly due to the corruption among the government leaders. They accepted the bids for the projects, the budget was allocated, but because they often siphon money off, there was a lack of funds to complete the construction of the flyovers. So there we were, you know, waiting in the traffic jam, thinking that, you know, the leaders get to enjoy the benefits, okay, corruptly obtained from the people, while the road improvement projects remain incomplete. And people like you and me, like us, get stuck in the massive jams, just like the one we found ourselves in that day. And we see today in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 to 36, that the people of Israel were in a jam. They were experiencing a time of distress and difficulty. This was a time when they needed good leaders. But we see the leaders of Israel, in this case, the sons of Eli the priest, rather than mediating with God for the people, they corruptly obtained benefits from the people instead. This is very much similar to the Southeast Asian country where leaders were supposed to help solve the traffic problems. 
but end up enriching themselves instead. The priest leaders of the nation of Israel, rather than lead the people, cared more about fattening themselves. If the leaders are no good, what hope is there for the people? However, however, there is grace. There is hope. And we shall see today, see it in today's message. That's what the author of 1 Samuel tells us in today's passage. He told his hearers that their holy God brings judgment, but also provides grace in the midst of judgment. And what is the aim of this passage? Scripture tells us that Christians can trust that God will judge sin. He's a holy God. He will judge sin. But we can also hope for God in His grace provides from Himself a true priest to mediate between God and man. Let's look at the story so far. Remember that the books of First and Second Samuel covers the lives of Samuel, Saul and David. The time period in history for today's passage is near the end of the period of Judges during the transition into the time of kings of Israel. The people had repeatedly turned away from God. They rebelled and sinned against God. As a result, the enemies surrounding their land opposed them and oppressed them as part of God's judgment against His people's sin. They really needed good leaders, but the high priest Eli's sons Hopni and Peneus. They were indifferent in faith, they were unholy, and they were worthless. Yet God does not abandon His people. God is there. And we saw glimpses of this last Saturday when we covered 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. We saw how God works in the life of Hannah, Samuel's mother, reversing her barrenness and giving her a son. We saw the birth of Samuel and Samuel's dedication to God and to service to God in the house of God at Shiloh. We saw how God deliverance in small ways in the life of one family reflected His plans in big ways to deliver His people. In delivering a barren woman from her distress, God works out His plan to deliver His people. Hannah's son, Samuel the prophet, was also a kingmaker, anointing King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. And this is where we pick up the story. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. After Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see in verse 11, Alkina and presumably together with Hannah, returns home to Ramea. And the boy, meaning Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And in case we read this too quickly, go back and relook at the last verse. It says that Samuel was ministering to God, not just serving Eli. This is remarkable. In a time where much of the nation and even the priests have turned away from God, this little boy 
was faithfully serving God. You know, a good song will introduce certain melody lines early in the song and repeats these notes actually throughout the song. And now we are introduced to this brief Samuel notes, as Pastor Dale Ralph Davis calls them. And they are repeated as we make our way through today's passage. So please take note as we work through today's passage. And if you have a pen in hand, mark out this Samuel notes. You can actually mark out the verses that refer to Samuel. They will actually tell us what is actually happening from God's perspective. And the story introduces us next to the sons of Eli, Hopni and Peneus. And you look at the Bible, they are described as worthless men. They are scoundrel and wicked. We see this in verse 12. And they are not the enemies of Israel, like the Canaanites or the Philistines, as we would expect. Rather, they are priests of Israel. They are the priest leaders of the people of God. As a result, worship is a joke at Silo. As the worshipper is boiling his portion of meat for his post-sacrificial meal that he and his family will enjoy together. Here comes the bullying servants of the priests. You can, you can almost imagine this tuggish little servant coming along with his three-pronged fork in hand. He will plunge it into the worshipper's pot and whatever the fork brings out, he will carry it away to the priest. We see this in verse 13 and 14. And it's not as if the priests were starving. I mean, God has really instructed God's people through Moses in Leviticus uh, chapter 7, verse 28 to 36, how to actually provide food for his priests. But apparently, it was not enough to satisfy their greed. Hopni and Peneus sent the servant for more. No, it's never enough. They want more. But wait, there's even more misbehavior at hand. Before the fat is burned in honor of God, the priest hug appears again, demanding fresh prime cuts. It's not enough that they have boiled meat. No, they want fresh prime cuts to barbecue the meat. Okay? They demand fresh prime cuts from the worshipper. Verse 15. And should the worshipper remind the priest men that honor should first be shown to God by first burning the fat on the altar. The priest men will resort to mafia means and threaten to take the raw meat by force. We see this in verse 16. Hopni and Peneus show sheer contempt and no regard for God's offering. And their sin was very great in the eyes of God. Verse 17. You know, if this was it, we really can say that Hopney and Peneus, you know, they're really worthless men. But this was not all. Because if you actually drop down a couple of verses, besides the offences in public worship, they also committed moral offences. We see in verse 22. Hopney and Peneus were also sleeping around and having sexual relationships with the women who attended the worship centre. They were certainly worthless men true and true. And if we back up to the second half of verse 12, we see that this is because they did not know the Lord. What a tragedy. To be serving in the house of God, 
but having no regard for the Lord, caring nothing for God, and do not actually knowing God. But, but take note, in the midst of this, we see a Samuel note in verse 18. So if anything, you can mark that verse. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Samuel was serving in the presence of God. You notice there is now no mention of Eli, the high priest. And Samuel was dressed as a little boy priest. Verse 19 describes how Samuel's mother, Hannah, would yearly provide a robe for her growing son as she visits the house of God in Shiloh. And we see Eli subsequently blessing Elkanah and Hannah, asking God for additional children for them. Verse 20. And this is the last we see of Samuel's parents in the, in, uh, the book of 1 Samuel. This is the last time they were mentioned. And this they were mentioned in relation to God's gift of three additional sons and two daughters to them. Hannah and her husband, from this point on, disappear from the story of 1 Samuel. But they and their house full of noisy children gives us a testimony of our giving God, who so generously provides for His faithful servant. And we see in the second half of verse 21, another Samuel note, you can circle that. Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The young man Samuel was growing up with an intimate relationship and awareness of God. And this is in contrast with the rest of the priests that was at the house of God at Shiloh. And we see here a mention of Eli growing very old. Verses 22. And he hears, Eli hears about the sins of his sons and their sexual immorality. What they were doing, despite the fact that they were holding office as priests of God. And he approaches his sons to plea for them to stop. We see this in verse 23. And it was, com- because this was now common knowledge. Imagine, the offenses have now become no- common knowledge. All of God's people were talking about it. Verse 24. Hopney and Peneus have turned the house of God into a den of prostitutes, a place where sin was committed rather than confessed. And Eli, being their father, tries to warn them of the danger that blatant sinning against God will place them beyond help. We see this in, ver- this in verse 25. But what was their response? Again in verse 25. But they will not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. I mean, we, we look at this and we, you know, we, we are startled at what is written in the text. But we need to understand that Hopneed and Peneus' resistance was not the reason for God's judgment, but as a result of God's judgment. They have remained so persistent for so long, so firm in the rebellion against God, that God confirmed them in it. So much so that the warnings of judgment and the pleas for repentance by their father Eli did nothing to move their hearts. However, in the midst of sin, in public worship and morality and unrepentance, again, we detect 
a hint of hope. The Samuel notes again, scattered through the passage. We see it here again in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favour with the Lord and also with men. You know, it's almost as if the author wanted us to notice something. In photography, we are taught to use light and dark to set up contrast, to draw the attention of the viewer. Likewise, we can discern here, the author is using the contrast of the wickedness of the sons of Eli to contrast and highlight the faithfulness of Samuel. God is doing a work in raising up Samuel. And we see Samuel serving in verse 11. We see the sins of public worship committed by Hopni and Peneus in verse 12 to 17. We see Samuel again serving in verse 18 to 21. And then we see the moral sins of Hopni and Peneus and their unrepentance in verses 22 to 25. And finally, we see Samuel growing in verse 26. It is as if the author keeps reminding us Don't forget Samuel. In the midst of all this evil and wickedness, do not forget Samuel. You see how he is serving God. They tell us that God is already at work providing for a new godly leadership for his people in the midst of difficult and distressing times. Again again quoting Pastor Davis, Such is frequently God's way for His people. Not all His way is noisy and dramatic. We may be tempted to conclude God has abandoned us because we haven't years to hear the silent manner of God's work. This often is God's way in redemptive history and we should mark it. We will not become too discouraged over Hopni and Peneus as long as we see little Samuel walking around Shiloh. God often works in quiet and small ways. I like looking at photographs of nature, you know, especially of nature in urban settings. There is something about seeing wildlife or plant life thriving in the midst of a harsh urban environment. This often calls for something in my heart that in the midst of all this harshness and hardship, there is life. Life. So imagine my delight when I saw in real life a pristine white egret. For those of you who don't know, uh, before I became a pastor, I was an avid bird watcher. So I was one of those that started chasing birds with binoculars, walking all over the place. So I saw this pristine white egret in the canal just off Paaleba MRT station some months back. And you need to understand the context, you know. I was making my way back after a meeting with a church member, tired, walking alongside the canal. Suddenly I heard a shrill note that sounded amidst the hum and hustle of the urban life. I walked towards the bird call. And because I did a fair bit of bird watching in my younger days, you know, I kind of understand what a bird call is. So when I hear one, I, I kind of look for it. I peer into the canal and there in the midst of the waning light with his feet in dark, murky waters, against the dull grey walls of the canal, so dark, 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 stood a single, pure, white egret. And as I looked, it sounded another clear, shrill note, 
almost sounding like life, sounding in victorious defiance to the harshness around it. It was almost like, if they quote, a National Geographic moment for me. Okay? And we see likewise in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 to 36, that amidst God's judgment, amidst all this harshness, there is a note of grace that gives hope. We read in verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli. And the strange thing is that we don't really know his name. It's not written in scripture. We do not know where he come from. We know next to nothing about him. But suddenly, out of apparently nowhere, he came to Eli with the word of God. Eli had scolded his sons for their offenses, but he does not seem to have taken further action to discipline them. He seems to have simply just slapped them on the wrist, but he does not take further serious action when faced with their unrepentance. His sons suffer no unemployment and continue in their office as priests in Shiloh. God's word to Eli was one of judgment. The man of God first rehearses God's grace, then he makes an accusation of the wrong, and finally he announces the judgment. Judgment has come to the house of God. So we see first, the man of God rehearsing God's grace. We see in verses 27 to 28, the man of God reminding Eli the story of God's previous grace to them. God has granted the house of your father, probably referring to Aaron in verse 27. God has granted them the privilege of priesthood, of serving at the altar, of burning incense, of wearing the ephod, and enjoying the food offerings. Verse 28. They did not deserve this. All this was by God's grace. And this makes the wrong Eli's sons commit more heinous in the light of the previous grace that has been given to them. The man of God then makes an accusation of wrong. Why then, in the light of these privileges and gifts, why then do you scorn God's sacrifices and God's offering that God commanded on account of iniquity and honour your sons above God by fattening yourself on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? Verse 29. Why do you not honour God? Why do you not give God the weight and the regard that He deserves? Why do you corruptly steal food from God's people? This is the key charge and accusation. They have not given God the honour or weight God deserves. The therefore of verse 30 announces the detailed judgment. The man of God announces the judgment that threatens the wiping out of Eli's family line. We see this in verse 30, 32, as well as verse 36. But even in the midst of judgment, it includes a note of God's restraining mercy and grace in verse 33. He specifies a sign by which the truthfulness of the prediction can be tested. Both of Eli's son will die on a single day, verse 34, and promises the rise of a faithful priest, verse 35, in place of Eli's family, they were to be replaced. Here we see nothing less than an invasion of the word of God, by which, which by announcing judgment on sin and exposing sin, protects the people of God from being wholly overcome by the evil of sin. If the sons of Eli, Hopni and Peneus, 
threatened to destroy God's people, then they would be removed to spare God's people. It is a word of judgment. It is a harsh word. But it is also a saving word, a merciful word, a protecting word for the people of God. Hence, God's meddling word is God's grace to us. You know, when pastors and full-time Christian vocational workers get together in conferences and seminars, we are confronted with temptations unique, unique to the ministers in ministry. There is a pre- pressure to actually inflate numbers. Yeah. You know, when asked, how many people are under your watch care? There's a temptation even for me to round out the numbers. I mean, a round number of, for 65 people is 100 people, right? So I can say 100 people is under my watch care. Or we can run out a figure of 700 to a round figure of 1,000 worshippers on Sunday, right? No? So what if my maths fail? Just run out the numbers for ease. We often fail to remember that God often works in quiet and small ways. And we trust our definition of fruitfulness and significance of our ministries to numbers, to big and loud events that are organised, or impressive, impressive sounding programs implemented. All this, rather than simply trust God to do His work when God's word is preached. But this temptation is not unique to pastors and full-time Christian vocational workers, is it? All of us are attracted to the big and impressive. Perhaps there could be even conferences with big-name Christian pastors, theologians and authors. We are attracted to those thinking that they are solutions to whatever issues we face, or perhaps even thinking that they are the key to unlocking our spiritual growth and maturity. And this is part of Singapore culture. We are pragmatic people. We are pragmatic people who like big programs and expect quick results. Or do we evaluate church health by numbers, thinking that just because numbers are not increasing impressively, the church is not growing. Do we learn to see, as the author of First Samuel teaches us today, to discern the grace notes in the midst of difficulties and apparent no results? After all, this is how we see our faithful God working through the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the gospel and disciple a small band of twelve men. Okay, small band of twelve men. Rather than holding a worldwide preaching tour, I can imagine you know, Jesus coming, I mean, he's the preacher par excellence. He can come and say, man, I'm going to organize a worldwide preaching tour. First, we'll do it in Galilee, then we move to Italy, then we're going to hit Rome, finally we end up in Spain. He could have done that. But what did Jesus do? He gathered, he proclaimed the gospel, he gathered and discipled a small band of 12 men. And from this small band of disciples, the gospel sounded forth. And his power changed the world. Do not get me wrong. I give thanks for those whose ministry involved a worldwide reach. I give thanks again for true healthy church with big numbers. But I caution us against thinking that God must work in loud and big ways. God often works in quiet and small ways. And we need to learn to trust Him to work His ways via His method in His own Do you get irritated when a church member tries to talk to you 
and bring instruction into your life from the Word of God? Or do you get fed up when your Christian friend approaches you and tries to bring correction from God's Word upon your life? I mean, who are you to talk to me that way, you know? Do you get angry and rebuff someone from the church community who confronts and warns you about your sin? We all do that. We need to understand that God's meddling word is God's grace to us. We see today how the man of God confronts Eli with the word of God. The Bible reveals our sins and confronts us with our guilt. But oftentimes, sin makes us blind to our own sin. Let me repeat that. Sin makes us blind to our own sin. And we are not able to perceive our sins and failures clearly. And this is when God's meddling word can come to us, can come to us through our community, through our church community. When someone brings God's word to you and I, pointing out our sins and where we fall short, we will be driven back to mercy found in Christ Jesus. At times like this, we can be grateful that God's word through our meddling friend is God's grace to us. And I know some of you might be thinking, really, Ollie? Really? You know? What about those busybodies that come and just talk to me all the time, you know? And try to fix me. But think along with me. If the goal of the church is disciple making, it means that we help each other grow in discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our discipleship means growing in Christ likeness. Then God's word through our meddling friend is a means of God's grace for us, helping us to grow. If it's through this means that our sins are exposed, that we can be called to repentance, that we can turn to Jesus Christ and fight sin in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we should be grateful and welcome God's meddling word to us. Finally, do you remember 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, which curiously shows God's grace to His people amidst His judgment. God says, And I will raise for Myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in My heart and in My mind, and will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before My anointed forever. God's kingdom and people may suffer from arrogant, immoral, unrepentant priests, but God will have a faithful priest. He insists on it. God has a sort of saving steadfastness, a sort of saving stubbornness that will not be turned aside from benefiting His people. Later, in the history of Israel, we actually see this particular line of uh, Zadok, son of Ahitab, replacing Eli's descendants as priests. We see this in 2 Samuel 8 and 15, as well as 1 Kings 2. And this fulfills the prediction of the man of God who spoke to Eli. Zadok and his descendants will therefore always minister before God's anointed one, David, son, Solomon, and his descendants. Nevertheless, the prediction did not just end there. Ultimate fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ, the supreme God-anointed one, being designated by God to be his high priest, Hebrews 5.10, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6.20 In Jesus Christ, the two offices of God's anointed king and God's high priest finds its fulfillment. He graciously 
loses and mediates between God and man. He is God's grace note to us. Let us pray. Father God, you are a holy God who judges sin. Yet in the midst of your judgment, you demonstrate grace to us. Grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Teach us to trust and delight in your gracious provision and look, to all, and look always to Jesus Christ, our King and High Priest. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us and help us to live lives that reflect your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank <laughs> you.